0: What's
1: going on, everyone? Nick Filato here, rocking the solo pod to do our annual UDFA roundup. Undrafted free agents for the New York football giants. All these players are looking to contend for a coveted roster spot. And I want to thank everyone for checking Dan and I out throughout the season and into the draft. It's a grind, but one we love, and we're thankful for each and every one of you. The Giants had successful undrafted players throughout their history, Victor Cruz likely being the most notable after torching the Jets for three touchdowns in a preseason game back in the summer of 2010. And I remember exactly where I was for that game. I had just gotten back from my first deployment and was in Wildwood with my family. That night, as a possible 20-year-old, I obtained some Jack Daniels, you know, the whiskey of choice, and watched the Giant Jet preseason game. Because, of course, that's what I'm going to do on vacation. Lo and behold, there was some undrafted kid from UMass wearing number three. I was like, who the hell is this guy? Well, Antonio Cromartie. His name is Victor Cruz, and we all know the impact he ended up having for the Giants en route to a Super Bowl in the subsequent season. Spencer Paysinger, Chase Blackburn, Mark Herzlick, Henry Annowski, Jake Ballard, James Butler. These are some other undrafted free agents in recent memory who carved out important roles on the Giants. Last season, an edge rusher from UNC named Taman Fox earned a rotational role on early downs for the Giants as a UDFA, and Ryder Anderson earned a roster spot as a minicamp invite, which is fairly uncommon. We won't go over many minicamp invites, there's dozens, But I do have notes on a few of them, so I'll just toss them in there as well, especially the ones that I find a little bit more intriguing. Maybe they could pull a Ryder Anderson next year. So on this podcast, we will mostly focus on the UDFAs. But before that, I want to talk about the seven Giants draft picks and what weight they were upon showing up for rookie camp. Every draft pick showed up a little heavier than what they were at the Combine or at their Pro Day, except for Jordan Riley, the defensive lineman out of Oregon. Deontay Banks was 197 at the Combine, and he weighed 205 today at rookie minicamp. And that's good, right? As long as it doesn't affect his overall movement skills or athletic ability, I'm fine with him putting on a couple pounds. We know Deontay Banks is a sticky man coverage cornerback who likes to get physical. 205 pounds is a solid weight for a corner. John Michael Schmitz was 301 at the combine. I'm glad that he put on a little extra oomph, and he's up to 310 pounds. Jalen Hile, 176 at the combine. Now he's 185, and he was a player who discussed this When talking with the media earlier last week, he said he wanted to get up close to one ninety just so he can get stronger at the top of his routes and off the line of scrimmage. One hundred seventy six to one hundred eighty five, is five pounds away from one hundred ninety. As long as it doesn't take away from his explosive playmaking ability, which Jalen Hyatt told a reporter, and I don't remember who it was, but he was like, That's God given. I'm fast, I'm gonna be fast. So he'll be fast at one hundred ninety. He's very confident about that, and I support him putting on some weight if he can maintain that speed. Eric Ray Went from 207 to 210. It's not a huge improvement in terms of weight. But Eric Gray is the type of running back, and I don't advocate this for every running back, and I know Dan doesn't either, that you want him to put on weight because it's not going to really affect his speed too much. He's not a burner. That's not his game. He is not Israel Abadakonda. He is not David Nechein. He is a player who thrives with his short area quickness and his instincts and his vision and his patience. And if you add some more weight, you'll be stronger going through the line of scrimmage while more than likely maintaining your explosiveness because you were never really that fast to begin with. And if you see Eric Gray's quads at rookie minicamp, I'm telling you, man, him and Saquon Barkley are the quad brothers. Squad only emphasize the quad because Eric Gray, Saquon Barkley, those guys got some gigantic legs good one-two punch right there. Trey Hawkins was 188 at the combine, 195 at rookie minicamp, and then Jervarius Owens was 195. Now he is 200. Whereas Jordan Riley was 338 at his pro day, he dropped down to 325. And one interesting note about Jordan Riley, when he transferred from the community college that he was at to Nebraska, he cut from like 335 to 305. And then he put on another 30 pounds when he went to Oregon or maybe it was during his second season at Nebraska because he did also suffer an injury, I believe, his first year on campus at Nebraska. So he can cut weight. He can add weight. I think he's best being heavier because his job, if he makes this team over a player like DJ Davidson, if there is going to be a true one-on-one competition between the two, is going to be to eat blocks to keep the linebackers free and to just occupy gaps and just be a force on the line of scrimmage. And he's a pretty damn good run defender. The Giants landed in the seventh round. Won't offer much as a pass rusher. And if anybody wants a breakdown on Jordan Riley, I did one for Big Blue View earlier last week. So go and check that out. So here are some of the undrafted guys we're going to be going over. I've watched tape on all of these individuals except for the long snapper from Charlotte, Cameron Lyons, who will be competing for a roster spot. Over Casey Kreider, I don't know if he's going to make the team, but I don't want really to have much on the long snapper. But we will be discussing Bryce Ford Wheaton, the wide receiver from West Virginia, tight end Ryan Jones out of ECU, defensive end Haba Baldonado at a Pitt, linebacker Troy Brown out of Ole Miss, linebacker Deontay Johnson out of Toledo, cornerback Jamon Green out of Michigan, safety Alex Cook out of Washington, and then Tommy DeVito, the quarterback out of Illinois, formerly from Syracuse. Oh, and one note before I get into some of these evaluations, some of these notes I have on these players, kudos up to Dexter Lawrence. Dan and I have not discussed this yet on the podcast, and I'm sure we will soon. Giants re-signed Dexter Lawrence to a four-year extension worth $90 million with $60 million guaranteed. He is now the third highest paid interior defensive lineman per AAV. Excellent. Look, he didn't reset the market like we all believed he would. There are incentives within his deal. I have not seen how the deal is structured quite yet but you couldn't let another interior defensive lineman leave your team. The Giants had become famous in the last decade and a half, letting very talented defensive linemen that they drafted go in free agency. Now they retained Dexter Lawrence, who was a first-round pick by Dave Gettleman back in 2019 when the Giants had three first-round picks, and we saw what he did under one year with Andre Patterson, the famous coach who came over to the New York Giants with Brian Dable's staff, formerly of the Minnesota Vikings. I'm really excited about Dexter Lawrence's future. People used to call him a two-down run stuffer. I always felt like that was very unfair. He is much more than that. He's a freak athlete at 342 pounds, and I'm glad he is going to be here with the New York Football Giants for quite some time. All right, on to the UDFAs, and the most exciting undrafted free agent that the Giants ended up bringing in is Bryce Ford Wheaton, the wide receiver out of West Virginia, who was influenced by a former West Virginia Mountaineer who was on the New York Giants roster last year and is still competing for a roster spot, David Sills. Yes, David Sills used to play for West Virginia, was productive there, was a touchdown and red zone type of threat for Will Greer back in the day, and Bryce Ford Wheaton liked what the Giants did last year and they saw how they had this guy on the roster named Kenny Galladay who signed a $72 million contract who was not earning playing time because he was not playing up to the level that Brian Dable and this coaching staff wanted him to. And other players on the roster were practicing better and were just a better fit. So they earned snaps despite the fact they didn't even make a fraction of what Kenny Galladay was making. I think that appeal to Bryce Ford Wheaton, and Bryce Ford Wheaton appreciated the fact that this is a you put your nose to the grindstone type of place as an undrafted free agent. You have an opportunity to make this team if you develop and do all of the right things well and out-compete people. This is going to be a meritocracy here in New York, and that is what Brian Dable and his coaching staff are building. Bryce Ford Wheaton chose to come to the New York Giants. Giants also gave him a pretty penny as well as an undrafted free agent, and you can see why. This is somebody who blew up the combine, testing an over 90th percentile in so many different metrics, blew up RAS because he is a six foot three, teetering on six foot four, 221 pound wide receiver who ran a 438. You're running a sub 44 with a 152 10 yard split, jumping 41 inches in the vert and just under 11 feet in the broad jump at six foot two, 221 pounds with a sub 73 cone and a 415 short shuttle. That's alien type of numbers. And everybody was talking about Bryce Ford Wheaton after the combine. They were like, this is insane. Now, you watch his tape, and (laughs) there are frustrating moments, and we'll go through some of those. And this is also a player who, in 2022, he had 62 catches, 675 yards, seven touchdowns with six drops, and 18 drops throughout his time in college. Only missed one game with a foot injury, I believe. No, he also missed one with a leg injury, so he only missed two games. So a relatively reliable player as well in terms of being durable and being on the football field. He was a former three-star recruit. He spent the five seasons at West Virginia and was an honorable mention All-Big 12 in 2021, second team All-Big 12 last season, while leading the team in receiving. Interesting note from Bryce Ford Wheaton's profile that I was unaware of, and I know Dane Brugler dug this up, Bryce's family is tightly woven with the University of West Virginia Virginia. His grandfather on his mother's side, Garrett Ford Sr., played running back at West Virginia in the 1960s and became the first player in school history to reach a 1,000 yards rushing. He was picked in the third round back in 1968 by the Denver Broncos and later returned to West Virginia as an assistant head coach under Bobby Bouton. And that grandfather ended up being the first black coach in West Virginia's school history. And then he ended up becoming an assistant athletic director. And then Bryce Ford Wheaton's uncle was also a running back at West Virginia in the 80s and 90s. Bryce's Mother and father both earned degrees at West Virginia. So you can see the lineage for Bryce Ford Wheaton and the University of West Virginia. Bryce Ford Wheaton, after the season, he did not go to the Senior Bowl. He received an invite to the East West Shrine game, which is now rivaling the Senior Bowl. I mean, Zay Flowers, a first round pick, one of the most discussed wide receivers in this draft class, went to the East West Shrine game, did not go to the Reese's Senior Bowl. So look out for that in the future. And I think it's also important to lay out the context of Bryce Ford Wheaton in 2022. It was not a great situation. His quarterback in 2022 was JT Daniels. For anyone who doesn't follow college recruiting or college football too intently, Daniels was a unanimous five-star quarterback at Mater Day High School in California. It's one of the more premier high schools out there. He was the 16th-ranked recruit during the 2018 cycle and committed to USC. He failed to beat out Keaton Slovis for the job in 2019, so he transferred to Georgia, where he failed to beat out Stetson Bennett. Slovis would also transfer to BYU after the 2021 season to pave the way for this guy named Caleb Williams. I'm not sure if you guys heard of him. Daniels ended up transferring from Georgia, though, to West Virginia for the 2022 season, and he struggled. And now JT Daniels is at Rice. I bring this up because Ford Wheaton has alluring traits, that were not maximized. Although we do have to keep it real here, he is somewhat of a frustrating player. I want to be frank, although I'm Nick. Still, he was dominant in his first two games with Daniels against Pitt and Kansas, where he combined for 20 catches on 29 targets for 249 yards and four touchdowns. However, you go through his 2022 tape, TCU, Virginia Tech, those games, Daniel's accuracy issues really limited Ford Wheaton and what Ford Wheaton could do. The ball was overthrown, underthrown, thrown too high, forcing BFW to jump and take unnecessary shots. But one thing I loved about Bryce Ford Wheaton, and I wish he had the stats on this. I really do. I didn't couldn't find really anything on this. He drew so many penalty flags. Just so much laundry being thrown. And I watched The Pit the Kansas, the TCU, the Virginia Tech, and the Oklahoma State games from 2022. And there were just so much laundry being thrown for Bryce for Wheaton. The defensive holdings and the DPIs that he forced a lot of these Big 12 defenders is something that stuck out to me. And when you look at him, look, he has an excellent size speed combo, a very fluid player for a man of his size, incredibly physical. He dominates catch points with authority, wide, long catch radius. I felt like he flashed impressive contested catchability all throughout those 2022 games I saw. 52.9% contested catch rate. Great performances, like I said, against Pitt and Kansas. It's one of those things where it's like the sky is the limit for a player like Bryce Ford Wheaton, but holy crap, does this guy make a lot of stupid mental mistakes and drop the football in the most frustrating ways. He blocks his ass off. It's another thing I wanted to bring up. But some of these weaknesses, he's an unrefined route runner right now. He doesn't play as fast as he tests. I still think he plays fast, but I don't think he plays sub 4-4. At least when I was watching his film, it didn't really jump out to me like I was watching a player like a Jalen Hyatt, a Tank Dell, or any of these other players. You'll be like, well, he's this big. I'm like, well, he also ran under a 4-4, and I just don't think he necessarily looks like that on tape but the silly drops there are just times where it looks like it's hard for him to catch the football and it's unnatural for him to catch the football almost like he's playing hot potato with the football sometimes where he shoots his hands up to catch it and he doesn't just drop it It doesn't just hit his hands and fall to the deck he like pops it up in the air and it's up for grabs for someone to come and intercept which has happened a couple different times throughout his tape so that was frustrating to me I also realized that he aligned, I think, 86% of the time outside into the left side of the formation. So he's only really used to releasing off the line of scrimmage on the left side. But if you turn on the highlight reel, and the ability to make these contested catches to adjust your body mid-flight, to concentrate, track the football into your hands, tight windows with two defenders around you, the ability to have the awareness along the sideline to keep your feet in bounds while you're in tight coverage on these back shoulder throws, you come away and you say, I completely understand why a coaching staff would look at Ford Wheaton with all of these physical traits and say, let's bring this guy into our building because we can hopefully figure out how to mitigate these mental mistakes, these drops, focus on his route-running ability, and if we can get him to play to 75 to maybe even 50% of some of these highlights that we've seen, he's going to have a role with that type of body size, with that type of competitive toughness in terms of what he brings after the catch and how he blocks. I get it. I understand why Mike Rowe is probably excited at the fact that the Giants were able to bring Bryce Ford Wheaton into their building. And this is a very loaded wide receiver room right now. The Giants focused on it. The Giants corrected the issues that they've had. Basically, for the last five years, it seems like the Giants, (laughs) really since they got Daniel Jones, they haven't really had a wide receiver. And their wide receivers have been injured. And now they're able to Draft Jalen Hyatt in the third round trade-up to get him to add the explosive element. You add Paris Campbell in free agency, another explosive slot type of guy. You bring him back Sterling Shepard. Hopefully he can be healthy. You bring him back. Isaiah Hodges, maybe Colin Johnson can get healthy. Hopefully Wando Robinson can get healthy. Is Jameson Crowder going to make the team? Darius Slayton is back. There's a lot going on with the wide receiver room. His buddy David Sills is still there. But even with all these bodies here, I can see a path for Bryce Ford Wheaton to make this team based solely on his movement skills, his fluidity, his ability to make those contested catches, all of the other physical and competitive traits that I was discussing earlier, as well as just the upside. I don't know if the Giants are going to want to put a player like this through waivers because he might get claimed. Giants allocated a good portion of their UDFA funds to bring Bryce Ford Wheaton into this building. I don't know if they want to sacrifice that. So it makes the training camp aspect of this very, very interesting. Would the Giants want to part ways with that? If Bryce Ford Wheaton can just focus on his craft and develop and show the Giants, hey, I can get better day in, day out, practice in and practice out, he might have a path to this roster. It's not going to be easy because of all of these bodies. Like, I didn't even bring up Khalil Pimpleton, Jaden Pickens, Dre Miller, Jeff Smith, who's going to be a special teamer, Makai Polk. This is a very loaded roster. But I know that a player with his size and movement skills is going to be coveted, and we'll just have to wait and see. I think it's going to be a cool storyline to witness throughout training camp to see how Bryce Ford Wheaton goes up against even backup cornerbacks, even guys like Cordell Flott, who will more than likely be a backup. Maybe he'll win the slot job. We're not really sure yet. But he's one of the more interesting names, I would say, from this group. I think another one that is very interesting, has a shot to make this team, is Habba Baldonado, the edge from Pitt. Six foot four, two hundred and fifty one pounds, thirty three inch arms, big ten and three eighth inch hands, just under eighty inch wingspan. Somebody who's not the most explosive, not the most sudden. He's not gonna win high side with bend and burst, but I think there could be room on this roster for him. It might come down to him and Taman Fox, but we know the Giants did not draft any edge rushers. They have Kayvon Thibodeau, top five pick last year. You have Aziz Ojolari, top fifty pick back in twenty twenty one. Then you have Jihad Ward coming back, who's also someone who can kick inside in certain situations. You have Taman Fox. You have Ellison Smith, who I don't know what you're expecting from him. He's injured a lot. He blocked a a punt last year against the Eagles. That was all well and good. Maybe he has special teams upside, but he just can't stay healthy, which is really unfortunate because he's another one who's just a size, speed type of athlete, but we haven't seen much of him over the last two years. So the edge room is thin, and Hamba Baldonado, is a run defender. This is somebody who can set a firm edge. And we know Joe Shane, when he was speaking about Jordan Riley, the seventh round pick out of Oregon, he looks for size, he looks for length, and he looks for knockback. That's what he said. He wants knockback. Well, guess what? Halba Baldonado, and I'm not just saying this because he's from Rome and he's Italian, but he's got knockback. He's got heavy freaking hands and his hands are precise as a pass rusher. And this is somebody who was productive in college in terms of Getting after the quarterback. He had 15 sacks. He had 22 tackles for a loss. Nine of those sacks came in 2021. Some of them were because of his precise hand usage, his ability to win with power, which I don't know if he's going to be able to put a lot of tackles in the NFL on skates, but he does jolt these college-level tackles backwards. You put a tight end on him, he's done. The tight end gets tossed to the ground. I saw that, and I put some of those clips on Twitter from Haba Baldonado. He's a good run defender. He understands how to run defend. The one play against West Virginia that I watched, and it was cool watching West Virginia, that tape, because I got to watch Habba Baldonado, and then I got to watch Bryce Ford Wheat. So yeah, two for one right there. But West Virginia's offense tried to put a tight end on him, and it was terrible for them. He tossed the tight end to the ground like he was a ragdoll, like it was nothing. And I watched his 2021 UNC game. He had this one sack. It was kind of like a cross chop where he got outside and he cornered. And he can bend through contact. He's not the most flexible in his lower half. He's not going to be the Will McDonald or the Aziz Ojalari consistently winning with speed, threatening the edge in that type of manner. But I brought up his precise hand usage before. And I felt like his hands even got better. In 2022, I only watched the one game in 2021 against UNC and he had the one move where he was able to get a sack where his hands were perfect, but I have seen this guy employ club swim moves. I've seen him get to the rip move. I've seen him win inside. I've seen him kind of turn speed to power, even though there's not a lot of speed there. He has the ability to take like two steps outside to open the tackle up and then go right into the bull rush and just explode low to high and just uncoil his hips through contact to get as much power into the surface area of the tackle to put him on skates to try to pry open the inside of him to get into the pocket and flush that quarterback out. So I've seen that on tape. It's just he's not the most explosive. He's not going to be the most exciting pass rusher. The 11 sacks over the last two seasons, I would say a lot of them were on twists, on stunts, or him against tight ends. A couple were him unblocked. So it wasn't like he was just consistently defeating tackles. There were a couple plays where he did defeat tackles. Those tackles, they were terrible technique, terrible pass. sets. not taking anything away from Habba Baldonado, who I think can make this team. I do. I think there is a roster spot for him. Might come down to him and Taman Fox. But I can understand why Wink Martindale would want a big, long, physical player who is really sound against the run, like Habba Baldonado. And he's also somebody who blocked a punt in 2022. So he has special teams upside. He has some injury issues in his past dating back to the 2020 season. He suffered, I think it was a knee injury. Missed a couple games last year with a knee injury as well, so that needs to be monitored to see if the doctors check out with the issues that he may have with his lower body. But holy crap, man. Physical run defender who is, I would say, smart as a pass rusher, understands angles, was effective on the twist game. He's just not overly sudden or quick. And will that ultimately be his issue going forward? If you can't win with speed or at least put yourself into an advantageous position with your speed, can you leverage your strength and your precise hands as a pass rusher? And even if he can't, as we saw with Tamad Fox last year, who wasn't really a pass rusher for the Giants, there was still a role for him because of what he can do as a run defender. And I've seen Habba Baldonado wrong arm and spill Runs to the outside. I've seen him set firm edges. I've seen him penetrate and disrupt with solid closing burst to force these running backs either off path or just come away with these tackles for a loss. So I think he's another player who could be in line to at least have a shot at this roster. It's just, what can he offer you in terms of pass rushing? But as I said, will that even matter? I'll say this too. I thought Timon Fox had more of a pass-rushing repertoire coming out of UNC, and I felt like he was a little bit more explosive than a hobble Baldonado. And I know the Giants like him, so let the competition begin! That's what I'm all about. Bring in solid to good football players, allow them to compete, and let's wait and see who wins. All right, Tommy DeVito, the quarterback out of Illinois, formerly of Syracuse. This is a tough jersey kid. Giant fans are going to love him. I could see, similar to a David Sills Army, this could be a tommy devito division he played at don bosco prep when former Rutgers star mike teal was their head coach jersey high school football represent shout out to my cousin tommy falato new jersey high school coaching hall of famer right there that's legit google it devito is a 24 year old prospect who started at syracuse played a lot in 2019 back when he was at Syracuse, suffered through several injuries while he was there, a fractured rib that he played through. He missed games in 2020 with a left ankle injury, lost his job in 2021, so that prompted him to transfer to Illinois, where he started all 13 games in their quick-hitting offense, where he had a completion percentage of 69.6%. Now, I watched the Purdue and Michigan games from 2022. When his pre-snap reads checked out post-snap, He knew and understood what to do with the football, specifically in the quick game. He really released the football quickly, came out of his hands, accuracy was solid. However, when the defense used creepers, dropped players off the line of scrimmage, or rotated their coverage, then DeVito put the ball into some precarious spots. Now, he only threw four interceptions last season, but watching the Purdue game, I felt like he could have threw a couple if the defenders just held on to him. I like how he isn't shy to challenge the field side. I think like his accuracy is solid when he is doing that. He did display the ability to put touch on the football over the middle of the field. He had to play against Michigan on an 18-yard pass in the second quarter where the linebacker acted like he was blitzing and then dropped back, and he put just enough touch on it to get it over the linebacker and hit his receiver who was just waiting for the football. I brought up how he challenges the field side. Well, maybe when it's not even him on the field side, specifically all the way on the far hash, maybe when he's just in the middle of the field as well, He does a good job targeting the sideline and only allowing his receivers to make plays on the football. Meaning, he puts the ball to the outside shoulder. Allows only the receiver to make the play or it's going out of bounds. Sometimes he did sail it out of bounds. Sometimes the receivers couldn't make the play, but he wasn't putting it in harm's way. And that's what I want from a quarterback. I don't want my quarterback to be throwing that to the inside shoulder so you can have a pick six. I don't want that Matt Schaub type stuff. All right, That's not what I'm all about right now. You need to have... Great placement to the outside shoulder towards the sideline. And if you're not overly accurate, which Tommy DeVito, he's he's solid accuracy. I wouldn't say he's the most accurate. Then put it more towards the sidelines and out of bounds. So it's just an incompletion and not an interception. And also, like most young quarterbacks, pressure is an issue, right? When he was harassed, footwork wasn't all that great. You get after him. You're not going to have the best time as an offense. I think he's just going to be a fun camp arm. A player who will stick to the practice squad if he develops and keeps, as Brian Dable would say, slinging it, he may have a shot at being the number two quarterback behind Daniel Jones after Tyrod Taylor leaves. But he kind of has a ways to go right now. I mean, he's a functional athlete. He ran a four six four. It's not like he was running the football all over the place in college. He had two hundred and fifty three rushing yards throughout his career. Did have ten touchdowns. So he's going to get. I would say low at the goal line to try to score those Tom Brady type of touchdowns, but he's a better athlete than a player like Tom Brady. He helped lead the Illini to a eight and five record throwing only 15 touchdowns, four interceptions and just over 2,600 yards with again, that 70% completion rate, 69.6 rounded up. So that's Tommy DeVito. What the wait and see what exactly happens with him. And if he's going to stay on the practice squad or if someone's going to want to scoop him up, I'm not really sure he went undrafted.
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Well, let's move on to the two linebackers, Troy Brown out of Ole Miss and Deontay Johnson out of Toledo. So with Troy Brown, Brown is a player... Who spent the first four years of his career at Central Michigan? He played 41 games with the Chippewas, started 30 of them at linebacker. So he's a player who was really productive at a smaller level of competition, had 215 tackles, 31 and a half for a loss, six and a half sacks, five picks, and three forced fumbles. He was all conference in 2021, but he ended up transferring to Ole Miss, played in the SEC, was actually all SEC third team. Had 93 total tackles this past season. Started 12 of 13 games. The first game I watched was the Arkansas tape. And it was terrible. Like really bad. Like Ricky Stromberg and the guard number 55 buried him in the dirt like four or five times. He was constantly running himself out of the play. I had in my notes historically bad tape. But I'm like, I'm not going to just judge him off of this. So I also watched Alabama, which was a home game, at LSU, Auburn and Tulsa. The Alabama and the LSU games, they were hit and miss. The Auburn and the Tulsa games I felt like were solid overall type games. I think this is a player who has solid range. He's not the best athlete. He's not the biggest. He's only just over six foot, 223 pounds, ran a four six nine with a 1-5-7, 10-yard split. I didn't think his athletic ability was all that great. His pursuit angles were questionable. His stack and shed versus Arkansas and LSU were just horrifically bad. His eyes were inconsistent. He failed to read the quarterback power against Arkansas. That led to a 23-yard quarterback run in the first quarter with 8.56 left on a first and 10. And I wrote that one down, and then I saw it happen like two or three more times, not specifically with quarterback power, just with designed runs. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to write down every single one of these plays. I also thought that he just found himself on the wrong side of blocks way too often, and he looks small out there. Now, I'll say this. Felt like his range, even though he wasn't a great athlete, was solid for a linebacker. I wouldn't say a sideline to sideline range, but the coaching staff trusted him to line up on the line of scrimmage and tell me where you've heard this before, act like he's blitzing, and then drop to depth. And not just like 5 to 10 yard depth, like 15 to 20 yard depth, like Tampa 2 type of depth for a linebacker. I felt like that was an interesting note because we know Wink Martindale does that a lot in this defense. He'll crowd the line of scrimmage, seven to eight guys, and then he'll just drop them all over the place and those corners and safeties and slot guys and linebackers have to flip their hips, get to their landmarks, understand their assignments, then execute their assignments. And I think Troy Brown is a better coverage linebacker than a player like Deontay Johnson who we're about to go over, the kid from Toledo. Troy Brown at least had 12 PVUs and five interceptions throughout his college career. He also surrendered seven touchdowns and watching him in 2022 some of the tape that i did see i thought he did well in terms of his peripheral vision when he was just in middle hook zone he had a couple reactions to throws over the middle of the field where he was and he's pretty explosive when he needs to close with quickly and he maximizes his length he's not the longest player this is a guy who has sub 32 inch arms just under 32 inches and then 75 and three-fourth inch wingspan But he did jump 38 inches in the vert with a 10-7 broad. That is much better than what Deontay Johnson did. Deontay Johnson jumped 28 and a half inches. So almost a full foot less in terms of his vertical jump. And then his broad jump was a 9-4. So a full foot and some change less than Troy Brown. And I felt like that popped up on film. I didn't know that watching the tape, but it definitely translated. So Troy Brown has some upside in coverage. He can come forward in pressure. I would say maybe Deontay Johnson is a little bit better than that, but this is a player, Troy Brown, who had 11 pressures last year and then 10 in 2021, and then 9 in 2020. So 36 total pressures throughout his career. I think, like I said, Deontay Johnson might be a little bit better coming forward, but Troy Brown better in a lot of other areas of his game as long as you don't watch that Arkansas tape. So I'm not super high on either of these linebackers. But that's kind of how I am looking at him, and I think that's a good place to transition to Deontay Johnson, who's bigger, six foot two, two hundred and thirty-five pounds, ran right? a four-seven-six with a one six, 10 ten-yard split, shockingly bad explosive testing, but he has a longer wingspan. He's almost thirty-three-inch arms, and then just under eighty-inch wingspan. That's substantially longer than a player like Troy Brown. So that only doesn't help you in coverage; it also helps you in terms of your tackle radius and things of that nature. And although Deontay Johnson is longer than Troy Brown, I think Troy Brown is better overall as a tackler in terms of pursuit angles, which weren't always his best, but Deontay Johnson has some issues with that as well, especially when it's towards the sideline, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Troy Brown, though, had a sub 10% missed tackle rate in 2022, whereas Deontay Johnson's was up to 16%, just under it. He had 15 missed tackles this past season. Now, in terms of their entire career, Troy Brown had a higher missed tackle rate than Deontay Johnson. But I felt like in 2022 against SEC competition, Troy Brown wasn't a huge liability once he teed you up or if he had you within his immediate distance. He would leverage those explosive traits and then drive through and wrap up. Whereas Deontay Johnson, there were a lot of times in pursuit, and we'll get into him in a little bit, where he had somebody along the sidelines just got back juked really bad and just flew right past him. That happened a shocking amount of times. I loved his violence, Deontay Johnson, when he actually made contact, but I did not love his his senior tape. Maybe he was better before that, but there were issues throughout. So in terms of these two players, just because they play the same position and we can juxtapose them in this manner, I think Troy Brown is a better coverage player. I think he is a better tackler in terms of actually coming to balance and framing his tackles. I think he does a solid job coming downhill when he processes everything well, but the processing isn't always great. But he's small. And Deontay Johnson, much bigger, much longer. He's a long-legged type of guy with great length. Also aligned on the edge in Toledo's defense. Like I said, violent. Has special teams upside. One of my favorite games by Deontay Johnson was Ohio State. And that's top, top competition because there were times where those tight ends of Ohio State went to go block him at the second level and he's bending around their blocks and then presenting his chest to the running back and making these tackles. Now, there was also a play where DeJuan Jones buried him badly, but that's DeJuan Jones. He's going to do that sometimes. He did surrender a touchdown in coverage, Deontay Johnson, but he also almost had an interception on CJ Stroud, which I feel like was anomalous because when I'm watching Deontay Johnson's tape, Seeing him in coverage, not great. It just was an issue for him. I felt like he had really little concept of what was going on behind him in terms of his spatial awareness. And the games I watched was the bowl game against Liberty, at home against Kent State, on the road against San Diego State, and then versus Ohio State. And Ohio State might have been my favorite tape of Deontay Johnson because there were a lot of just weaknesses in terms of how susceptible he was to the back juke whenever he was in pursuit. His eyes were inconsistent. I didn't feel like he was a fluid mover. I felt like he was lost in coverage, like no coverage upside. He had six PBUs throughout his entire career, one interception, surrendered four touchdowns. And I just didn't love him anytime it was a passing situation if he wasn't coming forward. He had 11 pressures last year and 12 the year prior, but he's not overly explosive. So I didn't really love either of these linebackers. I think I've already said that. (laughs) But if I had to choose one, I think it would be Troy Brown over a player like uh, Deontay Johnson. And there could be a spot for one of these linebackers if they really develop, take to the coaching staff, and show that there is a lot of room for growth. And it's plausible, it's possible, maybe not plausible, that that could happen because the Giants did not make a lot of investments in their linebacker spot. Other than Bobby Okarake. And you're hoping that the sixth round pick from last year, Darren Beavers, will rise to the occasion. Like Darren Beavers, to me, watching his tape at Cincinnati, so much better than Deontay Johnson and Troy Brown, from what I've seen. Now, Michael McFadden played a different role in Indiana's defense, but if these two beat out Michael McFadden, that says a lot about Michael McFadden. So I'm not in love with either of these two, but that's another reason why they're undrafted free agents. Allow them to compete, let's see what they can do. See if they can make the roster as a special teams player who might have some upside, but they're gonna to need to develop from the college film that I saw. Let's move on to Jamon Green, Michigan cornerback, six foot one, one hundred and eighty-three pounds, ran a four-five two with a one 10 ten-yard split, thirty-one inch arms, seventy-five and one-fourth inch wingspan. He's a three-star recruit out of DeSoto, Texas started in 24 of 42 games, and was all Big Ten honorable mention in 2022. He had solid overall tape. He wasn't beat deep all that often, surrendered one catch over 30 yards in 2022, and that was against future top 10 pick Marvin Harrison Jr. out of Ohio State on a nine route. Green had inside leverage from an off position. Harrison initiated contact on Green, which created just enough separation about seven to eight yards off of the line of scrimmage. And then a perfect throw by C.J. Stroud led Marvin Harrison into the end zone for six. It was solid coverage, but you're just going up against somebody who's far superior than you, and the throw was way too good. That was a 42-yard touchdown, insane throw, insane catch, insane separation skills. That'll happen against Top Town. The other long touchdown he surrendered was against Keon Coleman of Michigan State, which was another perfectly thrown ball. But Green was late to get his head around on that play. Coleman adjusted and trotted into the end zone for 26 yards. That play was from the field side, inside leverage, in press with no help over the top. He gave up a ridiculous boundary side vertical to Coleman as well. Two plays later, that went for 29 yards. He was slightly inside in a press technique on that play, and he just didn't maintain the correct body position and lost technique up the stem to allow a high throw to the outside to be completed somewhat on the back shoulder. I guess you could say Coleman got the best of him that day, but Michigan still won 29 to seven things. I like about green. He's tall. He's long. He's feisty. Good tackler, by the way, didn't miss a tackle in 2022 has a wiry type of frame, but he gets physical. He's a harassing guy. I felt like his athletic ability was functional in the short to intermediate parts of the field. However, he will surrender catches in front of him. But he's that sure tackler, like I said, so his ability to limit yards after the catch was pretty damn solid. He only allowed 24 catches for 320 yards in 2022. He did allow three touchdowns, but he also had 11 PBUs throughout his career and less than a 50% reception rate, 48.8%. Like I said, no missed tackles last year. Aligned a lot in press. I felt like he showed solid patience and consistency with his feet and his hips when he was in press. Now, I'm knocking on wood here because he is also durable. Coach Jim Harbaugh joked that he has supernatural healing abilities. He got that Adrian Peterson blood, that tiger blood. Leonard Williams be talking about it. You know what I'm saying? But the weaknesses, give me some pause specifically with the cornerback position. His speed questions. And I know he tested well in terms of his explosive nature. He did jump 37.5 in the vert with a 10.6 broad. Not that bad. But when you watch his tape, there's a noticeable lack of explosiveness at the top of wide receivers' breaks or when he is trying to click and close, plant and drive downhill on routes in front of him. And that lack of short area quickness may prevent him from ever playing in the NFL. It just takes him too long to decelerate and to slow himself down. And I have concerns... With his recovery on the vertical plane against these nine routes, right? Against these verts. If he does not execute the right technique at the line of scrimmage when he is impressed with false steps or if he whiffs on his jams. Teams, just throughout his tape, feasted with curls and hitches when Michigan was in off coverage, when Green was in off coverage. Because remember, DJ Turner was on the other side of the field. And it's not even like Green saw too many targets or gave up all that much. 24 catches for 320 yards is not that bad. Michigan has a good overall defense. We saw a lot of guys drafted high in that defense. Mozzie Smith, DJ Turner. Last year it was Aiden Hutchinson. You had David Ajabo who was coming off the injury. But when you're just giving up these curls and these hitches, although you're tackling and you're not allowing yak, you're still allowing the the offense to just nickel and dime you. So that lack of just burst is something that I did not love to see on tape. But even when he was in good coverage up a receiver's stem... Good throws toward the sideline on comebacks and curls would be completed due to that lack of explosiveness and that lack of change of direction. So this is a player who needs to get his head around quicker to locate the football. It's an issue a lot of cornerbacks have. It's an issue that Deontay Banks has sometimes. He also only had one career interception. So he's not all that productive on the football. So these are things that I feel like Green needs to overcome. And the cornerback room right now for the New York football giants is deeper, thankfully. Giants added Deontay Banks. Hopefully, a player like Trey Hawkins III can stick on this roster. You have Leonard Johnson, who you brought in. Amani Oroirier. Aaron Robinson, what will he give you? Zion Gilbert, an undrafted kid last year. Nick McLeod is back with the team. So, Jamon Green, hopefully he can stick on the practice squad. I like his feistiness. I love his length. I like his temperament. I love the fact that he is willing and good in run support. But the athletic limitations that you do see throughout his film are something that does concern me. But let's transition to another defensive back, a safety, Alex Cook, out of Washington, six foot, 195 pounds, ran a 4.68, solid length, 164, 10 yard split, left a little bit to be desired in terms of his explosive testing. But this is a three-star prospect who was a dual-threat athlete out of Sacramento. He has good size. Played wide receiver in high school, but turned into a full-time safety after the 2018 season where he played in 12 games. He redshirted in the previous year, his first year on campus, but he did have one catch for 26 yards in 2018 when he was a wide receiver. But he ended up starting 25 games over his final three seasons in college. Remember, one of those seasons, 2020, was the COVID year. And Cook made that transition to become a safety. Now, he had 28 missed tackles over the last two seasons. It's not great. I watched Stanford, at UCLA, at Oregon, and at Washington State. And I'll say this, though. There were plays against Washington State and Oregon where he screamed down to the line of scrimmage and made physically commanding tackles. You see this against UCLA, too. Blew up a Washington State running back two yards beyond the line of scrimmage on a third and four from depth and did the same exact thing versus Oregon on a third and five. It was a quarterback draw. Very impressive, very decisive plays, physical. And like I said, UCLA, he did the same thing against Zach Charbonnet on like three different occasions. I really appreciate that type of mentality, that type of competitive toughness, that type of physicality from a safety, especially one who diagnoses quickly in terms of coming down and executing their run fit, getting low, wrapping up, making the tackle. However, on the flip side of that, This is somebody, like I said, 28 missed tackles over the last two seasons. A lot of these were when he was angled in pursuit, open field. There was a play against Oregon where he was coming down in the alley towards the line of scrimmage, just got juked out of his shoes to the outside on a second and five in the fourth quarter. So although he's, I would say, a commanding force coming down in the alley in run support, in the open field, he misses some tackles. He's a little bit wild with his technique. He'll dive, his aiming points are a little jacked up leaves his feet. So that can be cleaned up. But I have issues with this player in coverage. He gave up a 40-yard pass to Jake Bobo of UCLA on a dig from a stack on the line of scrimmage. I just think this is a player who could do a much better job keeping his feet active in coverage. He just allowed Bobo to cross his face over the middle of the field. And Bobo isn't exactly fleet of foot, if you don't know. And it was a technique and an anticipatory issue for Cook. And this is something that came up later in the game as well. Because the first one, the 40-yard catch, was a third-and-four play. Bobo also toasted him on a 12-yard slant for a touchdown in man coverage. And just terrible inside technique and positioning. Again, trying to cheat over the top against a receiver who is not fast. And you just get beat inside. He was also beat on an arrow route against Stanford, where he was severely out of position from depth and attempted to over-pursue. To the outside, the arrow route just came right over the middle of the field. And now Cook is completely out of position. So from a processing and judging standpoint in terms of coverage, I have issues. He's big. He's a physical defender. I like that. He needs work and coverage. He needs work with his technique. And maybe Jerome Henderson can instill that in him. I like that he's explosive coming downhill. I think he has modest fluidity. I think he's undisciplined. Cook only has two plays on the football throughout his college career. It's not good. He surrendered double that. Terms of touchdowns. He could be an asset in run defense, but he has to execute better aiming points to the outside when he is in open space. Has to be more disciplined in terms of tackling when he is in open space. And that coverage, he just needs to be more disciplined overall, not guess so much. Position yourself better and then be a better reactionary type of athlete. Because those were issues that he struggled against. Wide receivers who are a biscuit away from tight ends. Now, what is he going to do against a C.D. Lamb and a players like that? But this is another reason why he's an undrafted rookie. Let's talk about the last undrafted free agents. I got a couple notes on players who were just rookie minicamp invites, and that's Ryan Jones, the tight end out of East Carolina. Now he's an undersized kid. He's only six foot one. He's two hundred and forty pounds. Ran a four seven eight with a one 10 yard split. Not overly explosive. Twenty eight vert nine seven broad jump. Does have pretty damn long arms, thirty three and one8 inch, and then an eighty and 5/8 inch wingspan. And I felt like this is a player. He had an interesting path to the NFL. I watched his game against Cincinnati, Tulane. Those were both away, and then versus Old Dominion and versus Houston. He was a four star recruit by ESPN, three star by Two Four Seven Sports, Twenty Four Seven, whatever you want to call. He was originally signed. play with Oklahoma and he played two years for the Sooners on the defensive side of the football as a defensive back a big safety big nickel star position whatever the hell you want to call it he decided to transfer to ECU and change his position to tight end but had to sit out the 2020 season his first year at tight end in college he called 37 to 49 targets for 442 yards five touchdowns for the Pirates solid debut I would say and then last year He had 59 targets, caught 42 of them for 406 yards, and four touchdowns. That's nine total touchdowns through two seasons, first year playing tight end. He aligned in the slot 63.6% of the time. So he played big slot. He's not your traditional Y. He's not going to be your traditional Y in the NFL, being only 6'1". Some of the things I like about him is he's raw. (laughs) He's new to the position at the college level, which could mean, similar to what we used to say about Andre Miller, there's room for development. Similar to what we used to say about Rice and John as well. There's room for development because he's new to the position. Only this guy, Ryan Jones, is coming from the defensive side of the football. He's a functional athlete too. He's not overly explosive. He's not a burner. He's a little bit undersized, like I said. But he's functional, especially when he has a head of steam going. And I felt like he flashed impressive extension, plucking the football away from his frame on the lateral plane. I saw that against Cincinnati with 8.54 left in the first quarter on a second and 10 play showed some contact balance with the football in his hands as well in open space, ran through a Javarius Owens tackle attempt against Houston in the flat, and he had to recollect his balance on that play when he was forced to adjust to a high throw that was to the inside. So that earned my respect a little bit. Now, Owens isn't the best tackler in pursuit, but that was a good play for Jones to adjust his body, make the catch, secure the catch, realize the safety is coming downhill on you, and then present yourself as a target that is not the easiest to tackle, which he did. Owens still should have made the tackle, but he didn't. Jones also had an impressive run against Old Dominion on a second and 14 with 9.33 left in the game. It was a play-action slide play with Jones crossing the quarterback's face to enter a vacant flat. After the catch, which was only you know two or three yards past the line of scrimmage, Jones rumbled for another 20 yards, making two defenders miss. Before, ironically enough, Trey Hawkins III brought him to the deck. Also had a touchdown on this over the ball OTB we call it type of route against Old Dominion a little bit later on in the game. And this is the play, the classic mesh wheel that we used to talk about. Longtime listeners of the podcast know that Pat Shermer used to run this play. All of the time, if you play Madden, you've seen it. It's called Mesh Wheel, where two receivers run mesh. One receiver runs over the top. OTB sits over the center at about 10 to 12-yard depth. Then you have the wheel route from the running back. That good old Pat Shermer special that you still see everywhere around the NFL. He had a touchdown in that Old Dominion game on that. Just dove into the end zone. Didn't really have to do all that much. The coverage was kind of busted on the play. But some of the weaknesses with him is he's not very fast, not very sudden. Short. Length is okay. I wish he was a little bit more consistent with 50-50 balls. He didn't only have three drops in 2022. He did a five in 2021, but there were just times throughout his tape that I was like, you didn't make the catch, but it was you against like a five foot foot eleven defensive back. I wish you were a little bit more consistent with that. There was one play, a drag route, where he ran over the middle of the field, and this is just like a mental thing. He thought he was going to get hit, so the ball was thrown. He looked for the hit before he caught the football, did not secure the football, ended up being a drop. And then you got to talk about him as a blocker. He's not the biggest guy, and even at the level of football that he played, he wasn't really a good blocker. He gets way too high. His feet become inactive. He doesn't mirror Seem to have considerable lack of core and upper body strength versus edge rushers. This happened against Amare Morrison from Old Dominion, where Morrison just kind of tossed him aside. It was just a bad look. I saw one solid block versus Houston when he was out on the move. It wasn't against Owens, but maybe there's some upside in those types of situations. You get him out on the move, he can locate a cornerback, he can locate a safety, maybe a will linebacker, and just, if he keeps his feet active, stay in front of them. But overall, I didn't see much in terms of his ability to, to be a sufficient blocker at the next level. This is somebody else who's just gonna come in and compete for one of those move tight end roles. Giants are pretty deep in terms of the tight end room right now. After adding Darren Waller, having Daniel Bellinger, you still have Lawrence Cager on the roster. They bring in Tommy Sweeney, but undrafted kid, give him a shot. And now there's one mini camp invited player that I actually watch, and it's a gigantic receiver out of Central Michigan, Carlos Carreri, I believe is how you pronounce it. He's six foot five, two hundred and five pounds, ran a four-five-six with a one-five-eight. 10 yard split small hands for a bigger guy not the longest i mean 77 inch wingspan isn't terrible but this guy's six foot five you would expect maybe a little bit more length 32 inch arms but this is a former three-star recruit out of alpharetta high school in georgia the same high school that josh dobbs and jc horn attended he was a standout guard in basketball as a 150 pound kid he ends up focusing on football in terms of where he wants to take his career He originally attended the University of Maryland, where he played under three different head coaches in DJ Durkin, Matt Canada and Mike Loxley. He struggled to find the field until Dante Dumas Jr. and Deshaun Jones suffered injuries in 2021, which is when he caught 24 passes for 316 yards with five touchdowns in his final season as a Terp before transferring. He transferred to Central Michigan. Now, Maryland recruited a couple four-star kids, The former Florida wideout Jacob Copeland, whose mom got pissed at him for not going to the University of Alabama. If we want to do a little throwback Thursday, if you're listening to this on Thursday, I'm recording this on Friday. So I remember that about Jacob Copeland. But Carreri took his talents to the MAC division, went to Central Michigan. I'm not certain... If the impetus to the transfer was the recruiting of the four stars, was the turmoil in terms of all the coaching staffs, I really don't know. But he took his talents to the Chippewa program where he started 11 games in 2022. I watched the Bowling Green game, which was home, and then I watched at Toledo, at Penn State, and at Oklahoma State. This is a player who had 83 targets, 46 catches, and only two touchdowns. And he's gigantic, so it's kind of crazy that he only had two touchdowns. But that's all he had in 2022. This guy ran a ton of drag routes, for Central Michigan. He's a big guy, fluid for a big guy. He did run a sub-7-3 cone, mind you. Like I said, elite size, modest wingspan for someone of his size. I admired his competitive toughness and his ability to make plays when they counted most, specifically in the Toledo game. He converted three fourth downs, a fourth and four, a fourth and five, and a fourth and seven. The fourth and five was against press, and his release opened up the inside versus the cornerback, gave himself a little bit of cushion, gave himself a little bit of space. So he has a release package, I would say. I don't think it's the crispest, but he understands at least what to do to create some space in terms of when he is facing press. Speaking of press, he faced Joey Porter Jr. There was a play in the second quarter, 7.07 left, where he had a very strong inside release against Joey Porter Jr., who was in a press alignment. He took one hard step to the outside to shift Joey Porter Jr. And then he took his inside hand and he whacked Joey Porter Jr., hit him a little bit in the helmet, could have been a penalty, but he won inside with physicality and with good initial footwork to open Joey Porter Jr. up and to give himself an alley to at least present a target to the quarterback. And then he also beat Joey Porter Jr. a little bit later on on an inside release in the red zone on the second quarter, 629 left on a second and 10 play. Now, he had 18 targets and 11 catches versus Penn State. But he only saw Joey Porter Jr. about 20 times in the game. So a lot of his catches, they were just on drag routes, which are a lot of his routes, which we'll get to here in a little bit. He did have a one-handed catch on a drag route that went for 11 yards on a second and 10 versus Penn state had another play against Penn state where he caught this high drag route that exposed him. And his chest was totally exposed for this defender who was coming in to just absolutely nail him. And I loved how he was able to secure the football, get low after the catch, absorb the contact, spin off, regain his balance and then get North for a few extra yards. Thought that displayed good overall coordination for a guy of his size, especially some physical Actions at the top of his breaks are also parts of his game that I love, man. Against these curl routes versus Penn State, he was doing the Mike Evans just pushing defenders and being like, "Yo, this is my this is my turf right here." And it wasn't called. Should be because that's OPI in my opinion, but it wasn't called at the collegiate level. You don't see that called enough at the NFL level. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've been listening to me for a while, you know, I have issues with that, but Hey, if you're going to get away with it, use your physicality and use your strength. And this kid's got some good play strength for a training camp invite. He also had a beautiful catch and double coverage along the sideline versus bowling greed that went for 22 yards, he just hung up in the air and plucked it well away from his frame over two defenders. I wish I saw that a little bit more consistently on tape, but he did put it on film. It's within his skill set. I just don't think he's, always consistently the best in terms of contested catch situations i also saw some snaps of him in line through a beautiful block versus penn state on a safety from a reduced alignment that sprung an 18 yard rush at the beginning of the second quarter again i'm talking about carlos Carreri. if i'm saying the last name wrong i apologize but he's a central michigan camp invite six foot five wide receiver some of the weaknesses of this player though he's high cut in hips long strider which i don't know if you want to consider that a weakness but that's just what he is skinny legs has some pretty damn skinny legs when you're six foot five and you're not the biggest and you're just north of 200 pounds you're probably gonna have some skinny legs and he does his change of direction it's not very swift once he's opening his stride and accelerating just takes him a little bit longer to slow down because he does have such long strides that makes sense most of his routes in college were go routes deep overs and drag routes limited route trees that's something he's gonna need to expand on I'm sure He could take some pointers from Jalen Hyatt because Jalen Hyatt hears the same criticisms and he would vehemently disagree with the fact that he is just somebody who can't run routes. And I already brought this up, but the contested catches, I wanted him to be better at the catch point, like use your size to your advantage, use your strength to your advantage. And he was a 33% contested catch player in 2022. And I just think he's a player who should be better in that situation. And also, why did you only have two touchdowns? That's another thing I want to ask. But to his credit, I'll say this. He did catch two two two-point conversions in the games that I watch. Most of them were on busted coverages over the middle of the field. But those are kind of like touchdowns because you're obviously catching the ball in a situation that the defense doesn't want you to in that area of the field. They just don't count as touchdowns. He's an interesting player, but the Giants are so deep at wide receiver that the climb for this guy is Mount Everest level. But I did somewhat enjoy what he could offer just because he is so big. And maybe in past years I would be more interested in a player like this actually latching onto the practice squad or something. Right now, Giants have a lot of players who are more than likely would be vying for practice squad spots, let alone active roster spots, which there's going to be a really, really fun competitive battle between the wide receivers who are currently on the Giants roster. So those are all the undrafted free agents. Again, didn't go over Cam Lyons, the snapper, the long snapper from Charlotte. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. This is fun for me. Get on the solo pod. Just talk a little bit about football. I absolutely love this sport. Love this game. And I love the New York Giants. Thank you again. Please, if you guys want to support us, head on over to our YouTube, Big Blue Banter. We got a lot of things going on over there at the YouTube. Head on over to our Instagram, NY Big Blue Banter. Check out Dan Schneier at Dan Schneier NFL. Check myself out at Nick Filato on Twitter. That would be lovely. And also, just have a great day. Let's go Giants. Ready to cover rookie mini camps, bleed into OTAs, finally in training camp, and the next thing you know, the 2023 NFL season will be here. We'll be rooting tirelessly for our New York football guys. Thank you, everyone, and have a lovely day.